Welcome to the Backyard Bouquet Podcast, where stories bloom from local flower fields and home gardens. I'm your host, Jennifer Galizia of The Flowering Farmhouse. I'm a backyard gardener turned flower farmer located in Hood River, Oregon. Join us for heartfelt journeys shared by flower farmers and backyard gardeners. Each episode is like a vibrant garden, cultivating wisdom and joy through flowers. From growing your own backyard garden to supporting your local flower farmer, the Backyard Bouquet is your fertile ground for heartwarming tales and expert cut flower growing advice. All right, flower friends, grab your gardening gloves, garden snips, or your favorite vase because it's time to let your backyard bloom. Today on the Backyard Bouquet Podcast, we are joined by Heather Kane of Petal Pink Flowers. Heather is a local flower farmer from Eugene, Oregon, who grows specialty cut flowers on an acre of her farm. I can't wait to learn more about Heather and her cut flowers on today's episode. Without further delay, please join me in welcoming Heather to the podcast. Hi, Heather. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited for your podcast. Thank you. It's been so fun getting it launched and off the ground, and I'm loving getting to visit with farmers like yourself and backyard gardeners who are just a wealth of knowledge, and I'm learning so much myself through each episode. So I can't wait to learn from you today, and I know our listeners will feel the same. So to get started, can you start by providing us with just an overview of your flower farm, please? Sure. We So you already mentioned I'm in Eugene, which is like a university town, but we're outside of town in the grass seed farming. They actually are proud to call themselves the grass seed capital of the world. I don't know if that's true, but there's a lot of grass fields. And so we own a 10 acre farm just in the middle of all the grass. And I grow flowers on one acre of that. And we sell mostly to florists. I don't ship any flowers. So we sell mostly to local florists and then do one bouquet subscription, like CSA model, just for spring flowers every year and do some workshops here and there. But mainly it's the focus is selling to florists. So you said that you are from the grass seed capital of the world. I actually grew up in Eugene, Oregon, and I know that all too well. I remember being in high school. I was actually in Corvallis for high school, which is about an hour away. And springtime, I had to sit in my classroom with a box of Kleenex on my desk because my allergies were so bad from the grass seeds. So kudos to you for being able to farm in that area because it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And, you know, we didn't know about this grass seed thing when we moved here. And my husband has horrible grass pollen allergies. So I don't know, about one one week out of every year, we kind of look at each other like, why do we live here? But most of the time, it's dreamy. Like you said, it's so beautiful. Thankfully, it's short-lived, the allergy season down there. And it a little bit of rainfall, and it seems like it improves. I actually uh, don't have as bad of allergies anymore thanks to some acupuncture. Noted. I will. Yes. <laughs> I will look into it. So you mentioned that you primarily sell to florists. Is it day-to-day florists, wedding florists, all kinds of florists? Who is your ideal clientele? Yeah, I have a mix, and I would say it's like – 70-30 mix if I had to put numbers to it. 70% of our flowers go to stock people's shops. So um, I have like the most wonderful, wonderful, amazing group of florists who buy from us every week when we're, you know, not every week of the year because I don't grow year round, but when flowers are in season. So we do, we do a delivery truck goes out on Monday and by truck, that sounds more official than it actually is. We have a humble, a humble process here, but we deliver on Monday to shops and then restock most of those shops on Thursday. And then I, then on Thursday, we also have the florist um, who are doing weddings. So, you know, local florists who I use who come and pick up stuff. And then some, every once in a while, we get someone from a little farther away. Maybe they couldn't find something at the Portland flower market or whatever, and they'll make the drive down. But we're in we're far enough away from Portland, which is the closest official big flower market that 
florists really appreciate not having to make that two hour drive. And I'm not the, I mean, I'm not definitely not the only flower farmer in this area. So florists actually around here have a really great assortment of growers to buy from really hyper locally. That's really great that you have a very strong local market and -hmm. that your florists really support it. I would love to know, how did you initially build those relationships with your florists? That's such a good question. I went, so I did not grow up here and you're from here. So you kind of know what that means (laughs) because I feel like everyone that I have ever met uh, went to middle school with everyone else whoever has lived here. So um, when you move here, I moved from the San Francisco Bay Area. We moved 10 years ago. I didn't know anybody and nobody knew me, which is kind of hard when you're starting a business. So I started my Instagram account when I started flower farming way back in the day. Remember when we would just like put a picture and like some- The good old days. (laughs) The good old days. (laughs) It's totally. Um, I think it was 2017, maybe when I first started growing flowers and had to teach myself social media and all of this. And so that was kind and I would do like the hashtags like Eugene florist so that or the, the hashtags I thought that the local florist would be looking for. And it kind of the Instagram page became like a resume of sorts, I guess, you know, it's like a yeah, it was like a resume. And so I started feeling confident enough to kind of direct local florists to my page. Hey, you know, I, I don't know if you're looking for local flowers, but here's my Instagram page. If you want to see what we're growing kind of a thing. And it just was very slow from there. I think I started with just like one or two florists who started buying from me regularly. And it just grew really slowly. When I first started, I was not selling primarily to florists because I just didn't have enough customers. So I did like a year round bouquet subscription and little flower pop-ups here and there. But the florist sales was always my goal. It takes a while to establish a relationship with the florist because you have to build trust. They need to be able to rely on the flowers and know the quality is going to hold up and that you're going to be able to provide the quantities they need. So, Yeah, it's so true. How many florists do you work with now? That's a good question. I've been asked that and I keep thinking, I need to go look, you know. I have like five people who I deliver to twice a week all through the growing season. So that's like the bulk. And then there's probably 10 more on top of that who order pretty much weekly, smaller quantities. And then there's maybe another 10 on top of that who are pretty sporadic, like just for weddings or, you know, so what does that make 25? I mean, I definitely have way more than that on my availability email that we send out every week. But in terms of customers who I know who they are and they, you know, order somewhat regularly. That's honestly, those five main florists, they're a really big deal for my business. They, they buy a lot of flowers from our farm and it's just, it's just wonderful. That's fantastic. I'm a smaller community than you. And I have three florists that I work with on a weekly basis and they are so vital to my business. And it's so important to have such a great relationship with your local florists. You mentioned you send out a weekly availability sheet. Not everyone listening may be aware of what that is. Can you explain what your weekly availability sheet is, please? Sure. Yeah. And I know that different farmers do it differently, but what I do is every Friday, I have an email that goes out and my email includes pictures because florists are very visual. And it's just everything that we have available that's going to be for sale for delivery for the following week. And so we have pictures, I have stem length, and I usually give a description like this is an event flower, you're not going to get a long vase life or whatever. Try to just give them the most accurate, helpful information they can without making it, you know, like a novel. And so that goes out on Friday. Oh, along with quantities, because I think it's just good for florists to know like, oh, she only has this much. I can't order 6,000 burgundy dahlias from Heather. I mean, as much as I wish I could fill an order like that, it's just not wouldn't possible. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Um, so that's what it is. And we do it every Friday. And then people just respond to my email and just tell me what they want and when they want it delivered. They know, you know, we have our delivery policies are in there and the whole shebang. Once someone has ordered from us a few times, they kind of know how it works. I try to keep it pretty simple. Thank you for clarifying that. Yes. 
So when you started growing flowers for florists, how did you know what flowers to grow? That is such a good question. I, <laughs> a large part of how I decide what to grow is that if I just, if I love it, I feel like other people <laughs> love it. I don't know. Is that like self-centered? Um, I've tried growing things that I don't love that I know florists buy. I will use sunflowers and lilies as an example, but I hate them. I hate growing them. I don't like them. And I just can't sell them. Like I just don't have the love. So that's like my first criteria. And then I do try to pay attention to colors, trends, things like that. At this point, uh, and maybe you have the same with the florists who I work with and our relationships, like if Julianne tells me she wants floss flower, which I despise, I will plant floss flower and grow it because I know that she's going to buy that from me every week for the year. And what an honor for her to trust me to like grow that for her. So I, I do have flowers that I grow that I wouldn't normally grow because like a really important customer is like, I want hot pink dahlias. And I'm like, all right, I, I'll stick them in the ground. <laughs> and she buys hot pink dahlias as long as I have them. So, so there's that too. I think that's great advice. So you mentioned that if a florist wants a particular flower, you can usually grow it. If a florist happens to be listening or another flower farmer is listening today and thinking, well, I want to grow something specific for a florist or for an event, what kind of timeline do you need to be able to grow that flower? You can't just all of a sudden in June say, sure, I'm going to start growing X, Y, Z and have it that same season. Right. No. And I should probably clarify that I have definitely gotten away from saying, oh, you need a uh, peach flocks on May 13th. Sure. Like there's, there's no flocks. I meant stock. That happened to me. <laughs> actually thought I would have it. And then, you know, the aphids destroyed the crop. There's so many things. So I try not to commit to very specific flowers on very specific dates, but in this case of like the floss flower and she wanted it basically for the season, she's like, you know, the people I used to buy it from don't offer it anymore. I wish I had it. I want to know that this, like, I want to know that last year, <laughs> you know, like when I bought my seeds, um, like if you are a florist and you're interested in buying, or you have a relationship with a local farmer, just even as the thought occurs to you, put it in your farmer's head because we have to have time to buy Like you said, we have to buy the seed. We have to plant it X, Y, Z. I love to touch base with my florist customers right about now like late January, early February, I kind of give them an idea. Here's what we're growing. But if there's something you don't see that you're interested in, let me know. Maybe I'll, maybe I can make it happen. Um, after, you know, after February, it's almost like you missed the boat. <laughs> exactly. Well, and some seeds you just can't get. Yeah, you can't get them. Or, and even like we're already like for dahlias, you think, oh, well, dahlias, you know, you don't really have those until August, September. Well, we've already missed out on how many dahlia tubers trying to buy them at sale. So that time that ship has sailed already for this year. That's a great point. So I've heard two really great points from you that you just mentioned. One, you said, grow what brings you joy. And that is something that I'm really leaning into this year is well, especially as I'm having to downsize our farm right now, I'm really focusing on the flowers that bring me joy because when you enjoy what you're growing, I have found that the quality that I can produce is so much better too because I pay attention to them and I tend to them better than something that I, I don't really care about growing. And then you've talked a lot about your communication with your florists. And I think that's such a key piece is we get really busy but we need to be able to keep that open line of communication with the florists. Do you have any tips or what has worked well for you for keeping that, that open line of communication with your florists? Yeah. And you know, I, I am always thinking about how to streamline communication because at the end of the day, I spend so much time in the season and it's not time that I don't enjoy, but time is just so, you know, we're spread so thin. Um, I spend so much time communicating with florists, so much time. And especially if, 
someone is trying to match a color palette, um, I usually have florists order by color, not necessarily like if they have a big event and they're like, well, it's peach and purple. And I'm like, well, here's what I have in those colors kind of a thing. I don't know if I've really figured that out. I think for me, streamlining really like I have my five quote unquote big customers and they get more of my time, you know? So like if they call and and this is maybe people don't love to hear this, but I don't know if you're a really consistent buyer and you're supportive of someone's business, not necessarily you're spending the most money, but you're supportive and you're consistent. Then you just, you know, it's like if, if Julianne calls, I drop everything and I do (laughs) answer her question, you know? Um, in fact, it was almost just as a small farm. I don't know if you've ever encountered this, but there's plenty of times that I just have to tell people we're sold out for the week. You know, everyone, everything is purchased for this week, which is a really good problem to have. I hate having to do it. If someone, you know, comes in on September 15th and it's a big wedding weekend and I don't know them and they haven't established an account with me, it's going to be harder for them to get in on this small batch of dahlias that I have for that weekend. Absolutely. I love that you have those great lines of communication with your key florists and you know that that's the main part of your business that you focus on. So since we are already kind of coming to the end of that planning period for this year, what flowers are you focusing on growing for your florists this year? Let's see. I mean, it's all year. We've already got the two, you know, spring is huge, huge for everybody. I think we're all just so tired of looking at mud, right? (laughs) We're so excited to have flowers. So we've got tulips and daffodils. Ranunculus is probably behind dahlias, one of my, you know, my biggest crops. Anemones. And then behind that follows the peonies, which is really exciting this year because I planted those because of how many florists ask for peonies, but you have to wait um, so many years before you can really harvest. So this is our first year we can really harvest those. How many years into it are you on the peonies? I'm three. Yeah. So I have a I have a big field that's divided in half. And so each half is it's like staggered by one year. So the one half is on its third year and the second half its second year. So that's so exciting. And then we move into the summer flowers. I mean, top crops in my head as I think about it are Lysianthus. That's a really big one. There's the zinnias, the dahlias. I'm forgetting a bajillion things. We grow a lot. I grow a lot of different flowers, but I try to have some crops that are just like big. And if you want lisianthus, you know I'll have it, <laughs> you know, because I have rows, multiple rows of it. Do you start your lisianthus from seed? Uh, no. And I have. So when I first started growing, I challenged myself to master, I don't know, not master, to get it, to be able to do it. And I did, but because it takes so long. I don't have the space. I'm very limited on Mm -hmm. seed starting space. And so I just can't have like trays and trays sitting around for six months. I don't have space for it. So I just order plugs from Farmer Bailey. I do the same. I I wish I had more space, but (laughs) constraints, you sometimes have to make decisions of Mm -hmm. what's best for your farm and spending six months babying a seed is sometimes not the best investment of your time. I agree. So you said you have limited space. Can you tell us what does your seed starting space look like? What's the process? Sure. Uh, it's, <laughs> it is, like I said, we're humble here. It is my water heater closet. So I, it's the perfect little space. And I have a, you know, like a, a, a metal rack that is pretty tall with lights, grow lights. And inside of there, because of the water heater, it's already like fairly warm. And then you add the lights and it's warm. And I, I switched to soil blocks because in the same space of a 72 cell tray, even a 128 cell tray, you can grow more like 300, 400. I mean, you can grow so many in, in the little soil blocks. So I switched to soil blocks and I, I just germinate them in my water heater closet and timing is everything because after a few weeks, once they're germinated, I have to be able to move them out of that space so that I can start more seeds. So there are things that if I had a different setup, I might start earlier, but 
I just move them out from my water heater closet into this small, not even close to as cute as your greenhouse. <laughs> if you imagine what your greenhouse will look like in a hundred years, if nobody takes care of it, that's what I move mine out to, but also drafty. Uh, that's where I grow them on out there. So you know, like right now, what's out there is bachelor buttons, agristema, sweet peas, things that can freeze <laughs> really and still be okay. Mm-hmm. So you have an unheated greenhouse. Yes, I have. I have two unheated tunnels where the ranunculus are. And then I have a very small unheated greenhouse that Brett, my husband, built out of old windows for me. It's super oh, cute. It. It's so cute, but it's so not functional. <laughs> like It's just like eh. in a pinch. Sometimes I bring in a little heat lamp that you would use if you bought if you had baby chicks. You know, you put that little heat lamp and I'll hang that in there to just add a couple degrees overnight. But we're, we're, we're so mild here. I mean normally we only have one or two weekends or weeks a year where it's like down into the teens or low twenties. And other than that, we're just in the thirties. We normally don't drop below the low teens and we dropped to zero degrees in January. That was during that horrible time. Yes. Yes. And I have a heater in my greenhouse and I have it going because I have all my scented geraniums in there. And the ones that were on the edge of the greenhouse so for those that don't know my greenhouse, I have an 8 by 12 small greenhouse, but it's big enough for my growing operations. And all of the geraniums that were on the edge, the outer edges of them all are completely toast. And I did lose some of them, and I lost all of my dahlia starts that were out there because we dipped. Oh, no. it, the heater just couldn't keep it above freezing. Yeah. So, But that's yeah. very rare around here. Right. Rare enough that we're never ready for it. That's what I feel. Because we yes. went down to 15 degrees during that same time, which is not even close to what you dealt with, but still way colder than I had. I don't have the supplies like to deal with that type of temperature drop, but we made it. Well, and you lost power. Oh, gosh. Didn't you? Yeah, forever. yeah, we had like, I think it was like a total of 10 days. And in that 10 day period, it came back on for like 15 hours and I ran a bunch of laundry and like you know, did a bunch of stuff because I knew it was going to go back out. But yeah, we we're fine. It was, wasn't fun, but we I was it. thinking about you guys during that time period and wondering that is a true challenge for a farmer is when you lose electricity and it's cold in the middle of winter. Do you have farm animals that you also had to protect yes. during that time? That's the biggest problem. And I shouldn't complain because my husband, like the farm animals are kind of like his babies, you know, he does all of that. But so out we have a we have two wells. The house well can be powered by a generator in the case of a power outage. So we can still have like flush our toilets and stuff. But the big ag well that all of the animals' water is attached to is it cannot be hooked up to a generator. So when the power goes out, we don't have water out at our animals. So we have to cart water from the house. <laughs> oh my gosh. The cows. Like when you have four cows, they literally drink like a bathtub's worth of water. So, so there's that, but then the water, you know, is freezing constantly. And like the cows have icicles on their ears. They were fine. You know, they, they're fine. You just have to feed more to keep their metabolisms going. And, um, it, it's just kind of an ongoing thing, really breaking through the ice on the water. And then Brett even slipped on the ice. It was so icy. He fell. He thought he broke his wrist. He was just like trying to get water. He's fine, but it was very dramatic. It was very dramatic. Um, but everyone is fine. And did, do you have seeds going at that time under grow lights or anything? I did. And so they were in the house, you know, in my water heater closet, which was nice (laughs) because we had the generator going, but, um, it was like kind of, you can't just have all your lights on with the generator. So I would give them as much light as I could. And then I would take them out and like put them in a sunny ish window, but you know, we don't really have sunny windows up here in the Pacific Northwest in the winter. So, uh, the snapdragons don't, look as good as they probably would have if they hadn't had that little blip, but they'll be all right. My snapdragons that grew last year finally became uncovered from the snow. I hadn't <laughs> cut them back and they are so resilient at zero degrees. They're well, it's now above freezing, but they're yes. growing again. And I, I thought for sure I would have lost all of them in the cold. It's so good for me to know because I never really try to overwinter them because I thought, oh, they you know, they would die in a cold snap, but Hey, that's good to know. 
This was my first year trying to overwinter them because I've always gotten rust on my Snapdragons. Have you ever had rust on them? Every time. Yeah. Towards the end, you know, of every season, it's gross. And it overwinters. So I was talking with our Oregon Ag Inspector, and she was saying, you really have to move the location. Mm. And I don't use any chemicals to treat mine. So I just crop rotate and take Mm. them out and throw them away. I don't compost them to get rid of the rust, but it always comes back. But I tried, I can't remember the variety I used, but I started my Snapdragons super late last year because I had a huge snafu with some pests on our dahlias. And so my fir- I lost my first set of Snapdragons and started over. But I was having Snapdragons in August and September, and they oh. were big and beautiful and zero rust all the way That's up to the frost. Insane. That's amazing. You have to remember – you have to tell me when you remember what variety – because all the different varieties are kind of like different – I don't know, like some like are good for growing in spring. Some are good for growing in fall. Exactly. And I never realized that really until last year. I just was like, oh, I like this Snapdragon. I'll buy this one because it matches the color palette that I want to grow. Yeah. So I will, um, I'll have to look into that and I'll include it in the show notes so that everyone knows the different varieties of Snapdragons. Okay. So you also mentioned that you have a spring CSA. Can you tell us what your CSA program looks like? Sure. Um, like most, um, people have been able to purchase it since, I don't know, I think I launched it around Thanksgiving time. So basically, the flowers are underground and people are kind of like reserving them for themselves ahead of time. And the reason that's great for our farm is because January and February, we don't have any cut flowers to sell. There's no money coming in, but there's plenty of money going out buying seeds and, you know, whatever, compost, new drip lines, all kinds of stuff. So Dahlia tubers. Yes. Yeah. Dahlia (laughs) tubers that I may or may not need or have space for all kinds of stuff. So that's kind of how the model works. And then our spring subscription usually starts in April that's just what the weather allows. So if you're buying a subscription, you always already have to be kind of flexible. Usually no one knows exactly when their spring flowers are going to start. And I run mine for three weeks. Different farmers do it for different lengths of time. Three weeks is about all I can handle <laughs> because of the bulk of our wholesale sales going out. So we do three weeks and people pick up their bouquets at a local I have four pickup spots and I always try to partner with like a small local business. I usually know the owner and that's also kind of a win-win because my customers get to go to like this beautiful gift shop or a really fun coffee shop every week. So it adds on to the treat. You're already picking up flowers in this really cute spot and they don't necessarily have to come out to the farm. The farm is a pickup spot, but not very many people live close enough that that feels convenient for them. And then obviously it's also a win for the business because they'll get, you know, 20 people coming in who maybe normally wouldn't have. And so it starts in April, it runs for three weeks. And I usually try to have it end before Mother's Day and just kind of sandwich it in there. Yeah, we're in the middle of, you know, trying to sell the rest of our subscriptions right now. What is included in your CSA subscription? So you said it's three weeks. What kind of flowers do people receive? So they get all the best, the best stuff. So I definitely grow for florists, but when I order my spring stuff, I'm like, Ooh, this will be really good in the subscription, like a super fancy tulip, uh, like the parrot tulips, the really beautiful Italian ranunculus, maybe the new, like I have a couple new varieties of daffodil that have never even been like in the United States before. This is like the first year that Awnings offered them. So the really fun stuff that you definitely are not going to see in Safeway or wherever, you know, you normally see flowers. So, and it's, it's three weeks of bouquet. So each week we make, when we shortened from four weeks to three weeks, we didn't change our price. We just made our bouquets more fabulous basically. So there's like, it's a big, fabulous spring bouquet. It's fragrant. And, you know, they're fun because tulips over time, you know, they color up. You actually have posted some beautiful time lapses of like tulips opening up. It's such a treat. So people, I try to include them a little bit closed up so people can watch them color up and then open and unfurl. So 
I think it's a pretty amazing thing. (laughs) I never liked tulips until I became a flower farmer and realized that there was more than just the single tulips that you buy in the grocery store. The parrot ones that you mentioned are the ones that I've done time lapses of, the salmon one. They're just amazing. And it reminds me of an early Renaissance painting of those gorgeous tulips that you see and so many paintings from back in the day. I'm very intrigued though. You just mentioned that you have some brand new daffodils. <laughs> you know, so, okay. I order from awnings, a um, little plug for awnings. If you're a farmer, I love them. And I don't even remember what variety I ordered, but Hank called, he didn't call, he emailed and he's like, we do not have that, but I'm going to send angel fire. I'm like Googling it. I'm like, I can't find it. There's no pictures of this. And he's like, well, that's because this is the first time it's coming to the United States. So basically our amazing flower bulb brokers, they go overseas to like Holland to these bulb farms and they buy the rights to varieties, new varieties. And so like awnings is the only company that I know that carries like Yosemite Valley Angel Fire, which is a new one. So you far, you can like as an end user, <laughs> as a retail customer who loves flowers, you can really only get those particular flowers from a flower farmer who has purchased those bulbs from these very specific, in the case of awnings, it's like a family run um, bulb supplier. So I mean, flower nerds really love this stuff. I think you and I are both flower nerds. So Absolutely. it's like really fun to get your hands on these flowers that you know, maybe no one else has grown before or a florist haven't even seen before. That's kind of like the thrill of the hunt. It's really fun. I love that stuff. Absolutely. I do too. I also didn't really like daffodils before I started flower farming because I knew the yellow ones. That was all I knew. And I, yellow's not my color. Um, I'm learning to love some of the paler yellows and things, but I, I didn't want the yellow daffodils. And then all of a sudden I discovered that there were the fragrant ones and there were the unique like replete and Delshana. And I'm going, oh my goodness, I've been missing out all these years. Yeah, they're peach colored daffodils. Who knew? Because yeah, same. I didn't like the trumpet shape. I just thought it looked like it was in a, like it belonged in a Dr. Seuss book kind of. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't know. But yeah, these, the, the frilly ones that almost look like a peony, they have all the extra petals. They're actually, they have become one of my favorite flowers because they are so easy to grow. They're so forgiving. They multiply underground. Animals don't really eat them. They're fragrant. They bloom early. I Like what's not to love? I love them. I do too. So, okay. This is a controversial question. Are you team tulip or are you team daffodil? I am team daffodil. And I think it also comes down to the work involved. Maybe if I was buying them for my house, like you, I did not used to really love tulips either because I thought, you know, when you would be in like kindergarten and draw the tulip, it's like um, a cup at the bottom and then the zigzag on top. And that's just kind of how I pictured them until I learned about parrot tulips and the double tulips that are like fluffy. But there's so much work when you're harvesting and they all come on at once and you're storing them, it is a labor of love. And I love being able to bring that to my customers, but it creates a little bit of a, an ambivalent relationship (laughs) with the flower. Whereas my daffodils, you plant them once, they come back every year. You can rely on them. They're easy. And they multiply. Yeah. And I actually really love the fragrance of daffodils. Like to me, that like reminds me of my childhood. So I just love, love that. So I have a mission this year, and I am sharing this in case anyone listening knows how to do it and wants to reach out and tell me and help me. I would love to figure out how to bottle up the scent of some of the daffodils Mm. and be able to just have that scent year-round. I mean, there's essential oil bottles of like jasmine and plumeria. Why can't there be like a Sir Winston Churchill? Yeah, that is so interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, tell me who calls you because let's get on that. That would be amazing. (laughs) That's my mission for this year is to figure out how to bottle up the scent. And this is February. So I have a couple months to figure it out before they start to bloom. (laughs) Wouldn't that be amazing if you had like an essential oil of daffodil fragrance? That would just be, that would be so wonderful. 
Yes. And then um, I think I shared this with you on the side. I've discovered I'm allergic to tulips. Yes. The bulbs. Not the flowers. No, the bulb. And you're, I think you're the one who were like, um, you should wear um, gloves while you're packing your bulb orders. Because I never thought about, we wear bulbs when we're planting, but then, you know, we sell extra bulbs um, retail. And I didn't even think about I'm touching. Eventually, I probably will develop an allergy just touching them so much. Oh, man. Yeah, that's that's nasty stuff. I have to wear latex gloves now. So I don't know if I'll even grow tulips next year. I have 7,000 planted this year. Mm -hmm. And I might have to cut them if I develop a rash again this spring because my whole face was half my face was this red rash and I had a rash on my hands and my fingertips. And there's some studies that say that it's either coming from the chemicals that are being used to import the bulbs or some people are actually allergic to the tulip themselves. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm not trying to deter people from tulips though, because I do love the doubles and, and the parrots. The parrots have my heart. Yeah. It's a good behind the scenes thing for people to know. You know, people are so interested in the process of growing and harvesting tulips, but then that adds another layer of like, (laughs) then there's the tulip allergy that can rear its ugly head. It's just really interesting behind the scenes stuff. Well, terrible actually when you had that rash on your face. Yes. And also hyacinths do it too. Oh, they do. Yes. You can Google hyacinth fingers and they develop a terrible rash. And so I planted tulips and hyacinths at the same time. So we'll see how I do harvesting them this year. That's awesome. So so if you're listening and you are someone that has allergies, my suggestion is to wear gloves when you are harvesting and don't touch your face. If you have a bug land on your face or something, I think that's what happened to me is I was wiping some dirt or something off my face and touched my face. So I think what I'm trying to get to here is that flower farming isn't just the pretty pictures we see online. It has its fair share of challenges. Can you think of a time that you have been challenged as a flower farmer? It is very hard and there are so many challenges, but some of the challenges feel like exciting. You know, like you kind of rise to the occasion, like if something is really hard to grow, it just makes me more determined, like, oh, I'm going to figure this out. There have been years. I mean, I'll just, here's a, here's an example. Last spring, we had this weird heat wave in April where it went over 80 degrees. It was like mid eighties. And so I have two high tunnels, which are full of cool, loving crops that were very expensive to purchase, very time consuming to grow. And that's my ranunculus. It's like I mentioned before, one of my top crops and they've been stagger planted to like provide beautiful flowers for all the way through June. Well, it hit 80. I think it was like 85 degrees outside. We got up to almost a hundred. Yeah. It was unbelievable. And so everything bloomed. The week before Mother's Day, Mother's Day is, you know, the biggest. So everything bloomed, um, like hit its peak bloom. Even the stuff that wasn't ready to bloom bloomed on these little short stems. So we harvested thousands and thousands of stems of ranunculus, sold as much as we could. And then by Mother's Day, those plants were shutting down. So I'm getting these teeny itty bitty, you know, the last ranunculus blooms Mm -hmm. are really small. And uh, the aphids, no matter what I did, just kind of were like having a field day in there. And it was a huge loss, not only, I mean, just from a money perspective, but all of these commitments, because ranunculus is one of the flowers I can commit to because of how much I grow. And it just felt so, and and that heat wave, if you remember, it didn't just, I mean, it took out everything. It threw off the whole year. I don't feel like we Mm -hmm. were back in business as usual, probably until September, and that's just farming. I mean, you just have to either quit and be like, this is stupid. I'm burying money in the ground. And sometimes it doesn't like grow. <laughs> um, or you just have to just be like, well, okay, hopefully next year will be better because you can, there's so few things that you can control. So, um, I mean, that's maybe a specific instance, but just in general, I think the hard part is that you are partnering with nature, which is completely out of your control in many ways, unpredictable, not just the weather, but the pests. I mean, we talked about the, I always pronounce it wrong, but symphalins, you know, little Mm -hmm. insects in the ground, so many weird things that can happen that we have no control over. 
And that can really affect things negatively. So the challenge is like your head space, you know, your problem solving and your resilience. You mentioned that word earlier, patience and just how you're going to handle it, you know, and move forward. That's just, I think, an ongoing, ongoing challenge. I feel like I'm constantly learning. Yeah. I'm constantly having to stay hopeful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know they say that like doing crossword puzzles can help fend off dementia. And I'm like, well, where I'm not getting dementia because I'm no. in constant <laughs> problem solving mode is just a constant thing. I feel like some of the problems keep getting harder too as mm-hmm. the summers are getting warmer and we're getting these more extreme temperature changes. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you've had some of those too with your ice storm and the yeah. heat wave last spring. Mm-hmm. I'm praying that maybe this El Nino gives us a little bit of grace. But my husband was telling me this morning that March is supposed to be warmer than normal already. So I'm wondering if we're going to have flowers earlier this year. I was just thinking the same thing when I was out looking at my tulips and kind of comparing to pictures from previous years, thinking, I think that we're going to be a little early on flowers, which is quote unquote good. It's good for sales. You know, the earlier, the better, but Mm -hmm. it just makes it really hard to plan things because as flower farmers, we're working on like at least a six month lag lead time, more like eight months to a year. Mm -hmm. If you get the timing wrong, then it can really mess things up. So yeah, it is, it is hard. It's getting more unpredictable weather-wise for sure. You mentioned that there are some flowers that you have struggled to initially grow that you've been determined to grow. Can you share any of those with us? I think it's helpful for others to know that they're not alone in getting some flowers to grow. Yeah. I mean, I feel like well, I'll use annual flocks as an example, which I love. I accidentally grew it the first time I tried. I don't even remember how I did it, but like seven years ago, I grew this amazing stand of flocks and thought, oh, that was easy. And then was unable to grow <laughs> it like ever again until last year and just had to learn, you know, that doesn't like to grow in soil blocks that wants to be in a tray. And it's actually a cool loving flower. And then another one that I have struggled with, well, Lysianthus was really hard. I think I tried for three years before I got from seed to a tall, beautiful flower. I was able to kind of get these like little sad plants for a while. Uh-huh. And then honestly, poppies, I've never, I, I just buy plugs for poppies now because I gave up like <laughs> after seven years, I was like, this is, oh, this is too hard. Um, and then, you know, like, I feel like I buy Lysianthus plugs and I'm still looking at my crop like this could be better. I know that this could be better. I'm still trying to figure out what I, what tweaks I need to do to make it perfect. And stock was another one that was really hard for me, which is funny because it's such like a, it's everywhere. Stock is everywhere, but it is tricky to get the timing of that flower just right. Mm -hmm. And so I tried that for many years before I, I feel like I better knock on wood, but I, I feel like I've kind of figured that one out timing wise. So there's so many, every, every single crop is its own learning curve. Some are easier than others, but yeah, it, I think that you can literally always be learning and never reach like expert status, you know, on everything. There's too many things to learn. Absolutely. When I started, I thought, oh, after a few years, I'll really know a lot And I feel like each year, I feel like I know a little bit less than the year before. (laughs) (laughs) You know a lot, but it's true because your eyes are open to how much there is to know. The more you learn, it's just like the hole gets deeper. Yes. You want to know more. You want to know more about a specific crop or a certain pest. It just, there's always something new. Like just when you think you've got something figured out, I feel like some little wrench gets thrown your way and you're like, well, I wasn't prepared for that. Like yes. my first year, I was super successful with Lysianthus. And, but I bought them – well, I, I grew some from seed and some from plugs. Mm-hmm. And they were huge. They were like three feet tall, gorgeous. I had so many. I bought them again this last year and I planted them in a different field and they got fusarium. Oh. And I I didn't get a single one that was even two feet tall in length and stem length. And so it was, I lost pretty much all of them. I didn't, I maybe sold 10 bundles 
So there's some years that it just, it's that learning curve and I'm going to grow them again this year because they're beautiful. Mm. I love that you shared that you struggled with the flocks and the stock because those are ones that I've had troubles with in the past. Do you have any tips for anyone listening? Because those are both really popular flowers to grow. I think for me, learning that they need cool, especially stock, needs a as much time in the cold weather as possible. And for me, I found it to be frost tolerant, but only to a certain extent. If I had stock outside at 16, you know, when we got 16 degrees, it would have died. And that's why the timing has been hard. I, I can overwinter it in a tunnel. I found that, but I can't overwinter it outside in the field. I learned all, everything I'm about. Every sentence is a year of a mistake. <laughs> so there was the year that, you know, like I, it just every year I learned, oh, I can't grow this outside. Oh, this does fine in the tunnel, but you know, the aphids really like it. Um, so I think for stock, that timing is like so essential. I, I, when I grow stock in my field, I try to put it out the last week of February. And I know that I'm going to have to cover it with frost cloth a few times when we get down like below 30 degrees. And that's a pain because it's this big, long, you know, row outside with the wind and the rain, but it's worth it. Um, any later than February, it and it blooms on super short stems because it just didn't have enough time in the cold. So for me, that's that was kind of like the epiphany on that. And the flocks, similarly, because I think you're, you know, you're harvesting flocks in the summer. It feels like a zinnia, kind of feels like it's a heat lover, but it wants mm-hmm. to start in the cool and it would love to be direct sown. And if not, p- pop it into a, you know, into a plastic tray and put a, like, cover it. It wants, it needs complete darkness and flocks doesn't like if you have a year old packet of seeds probably not going to germinate so that's the one for sure seed that I buy new every year um it, it makes a huge difference fresh seed so that was kind of the game changer for me was I kept trying to grow it in soil blocks you know and it just was I don't even know it just I would cover the soil blocks and it was like no thank you I do not like to be in a soil block so those are my my tips Thank you. Those are good tips. I think as I was listening, I started my flocks late and I usually also plant my stock in March and I always get really short stems. So I start, yeah, usually a little more time. Yeah. I've, I start my stock. I started my stock. Oh, I would have started it earlier, but we had no power. So it would have been like the second or third, like the third week of January. But then I waited until like, I think just the very end of January to get it started. Cause you know, it grows so fast. I mean, those seeds germinate in like a few days. It grows really fast and is ready to plant out really fast. Yeah. Start them late January, early February will give you that extra month of cold. So do you stop sowing them after February or you don't do. succession? Okay. Yeah. So when I have room in my tunnel, which this year I chose to do more ranunculus because it just makes more money, you know, um, But if I'm doing a succession, what I will do is I'll do a December 1st sowing that gets planted into the tunnel. And if you, I guess if you use caterpillar tunnels, you know, you could do something like that. I hate caterpillar tunnels and I cannot be trusted to open and close them every day. So I stopped using them um, because around here you have to open and close them every day. So I would do like a December sowing, put that in the tunnel and then do my late January sowing and put that in the field. So those would be my successions. But this year we'll just have one. I, one of the things I'm trying to still figure out is how to have stock in the fall, kind of like your fall snapdragons that you Mm. ended up with. Um, I'm always trying to figure that out, but it so far, no luck, seven years of trying, but well, I'll get it someday. Start, start them in your walk-in cooler, maybe. Yeah, 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 actually, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, that's the trouble because when you're starting the seeds for fall, it's just so hot. I don't know. We'll see. I'm always tweaking it. I like that. Always tweaking is a great word because you always just have to be staying flexible and adapting throughout it. We've talked a lot about challenges and resilience and hope. Can you share with us one of your favorite flower farming moments? I think that... 
Rather than a very specific moment, the moments that I love, I have a lot. So my boys work for me, uh, they're teenagers. And then I have their, you know, in the summer, I'll have, I call it the teenage work crew. These are like the, the guys on the football team and the wrestling team. <laughs> they come out and it's a great part-time job for them. Um, and then I have this other gal, Natalie, who's worked for me for a couple years. And the moments I love are when I can see them have this like kind of amazing connection with the flowers. And it's usually something that they planted that they're harvesting. And they'll, they're, they kind of can't believe it. They're like, wait a minute. Is this, isn't this the row that, you know, we put those you know, weird looking seeds in or whatever. <laughs> and, or when we're even digging up dahlia tubers and they're like, wait, we just put one in and, and look at this. It's like crazy. I just love those moments of, of watching young people kind of have that excitement that comes with gardening and growing stuff and that rewarding feeling that has nothing to do with a paycheck. It's like, I put this little dried up ball in dirt. And now I have harvested a bucket of beautiful Rudbeckia. And, and I'm telling you, like 18 year old boys have, have the same response as like 20 year old college girls. It's just kind of like a universal thing inside of us that just is rewarded by that process of the growing and the harvesting. So that I think is like my favorite, what that stands out to me. I love that. So your boys help on the farm. They're in high school now. How old were they when you first started involving them? They have been involved from the beginning. So I probably started like officially farming in 2018, growing the flowers. And, you know, how old were they? Eight, that was seven years ago. So Moses would have been 11 and Tyus would have been like eight. Not like super helpful <laughs> yet. <laughs> um, so it was more of like a parenting, you know, when you ask a, an eight-year-old to help you pull weeds, they they don't want to, and they're not good at it. So it's a lot of teaching. It goes slower than you would like, but it was just our lifestyle on the farm. You know, they were helping inside too, and they're helping with the animals and all that work of training them has definitely like paid off. They're so helpful. They're super knowledgeable. They're like actual employees of the farm now and they get paychecks and the whole thing. And, you know, like Moses, he's 18. I, I kind of treat him as a foreman. So in the summer, he's got like his, he knows what to do. He can drive the tractor. He's, I just say, we need to get this row prepped and he knows what that means. It's awesome. That's amazing. I can see the joy in your kids' faces and the videos you share on social media that they truly enjoy what they're doing. What advice would you have to parents of younger kids like myself, for example? I have a nine-year-old mm -hmm. and I don't want to put her to work per se and say, you're going to do this, but how do you encourage them from a young age to want to get involved and to be curious? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it's hard just like any other aspect of parenting is hard because yeah, you don't want to enslave your, your nine-year-old and be like, you know, here's your hours. So we definitely didn't do that, but I feel like I went into it knowing I certainly wasn't born with a good work ethic. I was lazy. Like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to be dirty. I didn't want to be hot. I didn't want my arms to be itchy. All of the things that happen when you're outside doing stuff. And I had to like develop that. Um, and the only way to develop it is by doing it. And so having that mindset of, you know, we didn't bribe our kids. We didn't uh, incentivize. We told them you need to do this, you know, but I'm talking about like one hour of their life a week when they were little. It was not, they're definitely kids who had more chores and stuff, but the, I guess the advice is partly like, it's just, it's not easy to involve kids in your work. It will slow you down. It will make you frustrated they will have a bad attitude and your life will be easier if you let them sit inside and do whatever it is that they would rather be doing, because then you're going to get the job done faster. No one's going to talk back to you. You're not going to have to think of, you know, like it's just going to be so much easier in the short run, but in the long run for both you and your kids, it's so worth it. And I am in it. Okay. With my younger kid, like 
who is awesome and a great worker, but he's still a kid. He's 15. He doesn't love it when I tell him, you know, you're going to need to do this. And so I'm still in it. But then with my 18 year old, I feel like we're kind of on the other side and seeing he, he, he does not want to be a flower farmer when he grows up. Like he's not like, oh, this is what I want to do. But he has experienced that feeling at the end of a hard day of work, or he's created stuff and had that kind of intrinsic reward because we forced him long enough (laughs) that he could experience it and be like, oh, I've had a day where I was sweaty and uncomfortable and I survived and it felt good at the end of the day. And maybe I got paid for it or whatever, but you just as a parent have to power through so many years, like so many years (laughs) of trying to be patient and it's tough. I mean, if it's, I don't know if it's encouragement or if it's just empathy, like it's, it's tough, but it's so worth it. It's just really worth it. There's so many great life lessons they can learn from the field. I know when I think about trying to get my daughter more involved, it's you and Marin from the farmhouse flower farm that always come to my mind because both of you are so good at involving your children. And I think of your boys as teenagers and watching them be so helpful and involved. And then I think of farmer Finn, Marin's son, and him making bouquets and cutting his own flowers. And I've been in the field and seen how proud he is uh, to help her as well. So I think kudos to both of you for raising such wonderful young men and for setting a great example for the rest of us on how we can encourage our kids from a young age to get involved with nature and have a respect for farming and hard work and being part of something greater than just themselves. So thank you for those tips. You have shared so much great information with us today, and it's been so fun chatting with you. I feel like I could probably talk to you for another couple hours, (laughs) but I won't do that to you today because I know this is a busy time of year. So perhaps we could continue this conversation again another time and touch on some other topics. I'd love to have you back on the podcast again someday. Before we go today, can you tell our listeners how they can connect with you? Oh, sure. Mainly I'm on Instagram. So it's at petal pink flowers, all one word. And, you know, I try to post definitely in the stories. And if you're really interested in like learning, I do have a subscription on there. Um, It's $5 a month. And that in the subscription, you basically get access to whatever it's paywall protected. (laughs) You don't see this if you don't subscribe. Um, It's a lot of like more in-depth growing tips and stuff like that. It's focused on growing. It's not focused on anything else. So there are a lot of people who just want to see flowers and that's just what the regular Instagram page is for. And then um, if you're super local to me and you want the bouquet subscription and you're interested in that, you can buy it on our website, which is also petalpinkflowers.com. So that's where I am. Thank you. I'll link to those in the show notes so people can click from the episode notes to those as well. Before we say goodbye today, is there any piece of advice or anything you would like to leave our listeners with today? I think that there is that reward of growing something for everybody. And I tell this like to college students, even that I interact with, get a pot, put some dirt in it and stuff a tulip bulb in there, you know, or something, throw a tomato plant from the nursery in there. And just so that you can have that rewarding experience, you can grow stuff even if you live in an apartment on the second floor. Like you, you, I've watched people do it. <laughs> so I just think that it brings so much joy. So that's my little advice. Um, if you can do it, you, well, you can do it. You can do it. Everyone can do it. It's easy and it's attainable. You don't have to have a farm to grow something. Absolutely. That's great advice. Thank you. So this is the perfect time to go out and buy that container and start sowing those seeds or planning to sow those seeds for spring. So thank you, Heather. It's been such a treat to hear from you. And we're so excited to see all of your spring flowers blooming. You have all of those gorgeous ranunculus that I can't wait to see your big armfuls on social media soon. So thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much, Jen, for having me. Thanks. Have a great day. 
Thank you, flower friends, for joining us on another episode of The Backyard Bouquet. I hope you've enjoyed the inspiring stories and valuable gardening insights we've shared today. Whether you're cultivating your own backyard blooms or supporting your local flower farmer, you're contributing to the local flower movement, and we're so happy to have you growing with us. If you'd like to stay connected and continue this blossoming journey with local flowers, don't forget to subscribe to the Backyard Bouquet podcast. I'd be so grateful if you would take a moment to leave us a review of this episode. And finally, please share this episode with your garden friends. Until next time, keep growing, keep blooming, and remember that every bouquet starts right here in the backyard. <laughs>